0: Jesus is not coming with a little sweater
1: I don't think he's coming like Mr. Rogers In the land of make believe That's what
0: they want us to do Make believe that it was legitimate Make believe that it really wasn't stolen Make believe that he had more
1: votes Jesus is not coming with this sweater Well, Pastor Hank, how's he coming? He's coming like Rambo That's how he's coming.
0: That is Hank Kuhneman, senior pastor of Lord of Host Church in Omaha, Nebraska, on January 10th delivering a fiery message to his congregation and nearly 30,000 viewers online. It was just four days after the insurrection at the United States Capitol and 10 days before the inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. In his 42-minute sermon, he shares his prophecy that God is on the side of President Trump insisting that President-elect Joe Biden is illegitimate and will be challenged by God's warriors, calling his congregation to not lose faith. Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umberine Khan. It is not lost on us that 20 years ago, not long after 9-11, this program began to foster understanding about the way religion and beliefs shape the world we live in. If 2020 was a year of reckoning with systemic racism, 2021 begins as a reckoning with religious extremism.
2: There are people who are threatening my life. Many people who uh, believe that to support Donald Trump is godly. Therefore, I have to be satanic because I want to impeach him. Unfortunately, some are convinced that whatever they do for Donald Trump, who they believe was ordained by God, to lead the United States. And therefore, anything they do in his defense is, you know, one of the great things they can do for their, their faith.
0: That is Missouri Congressman Emmanuel Cleavers. Elected in 2005, he represents the 5th Congressional District, which encompasses Kansas City. I spoke to him by phone on January 12th, the day impeachment articles were introduced. Our conversation centered on faith, Before becoming an elected leader, he served as senior pastor of the St. James United Methodist Church. The day after the insurrection on January 6th, the threats of violence extended beyond the nation's capital as extremists targeted state capitals, members of Congress, and houses of worship, including his home church.
2: Our church has been threatened. We have had to hire police for safety purposes each day of the week now. Because of all of the threats that took place last week, the, it was so bad that the, all of the the employees of the church were asked to go home. And the uh, bishop's uh, office for the Missouri Conference of the United Methodist Church is located in uh, Col- uh, Columbia, Missouri, about 125 miles away. The bishop there had to disconnect the phones because of the phone calls that were coming in. They were also getting. Uh, threats. I think in the name of God, many people are wanting to do all kinds of things. And that is, the, of course, the most alarming part of this.
0: Representative Cleavers is no stranger to confronting white supremacy or violence justified by interpretations of sacred texts. He is a veteran of the civil rights era. Dr. Ralph Abernathy of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference directed the Young Cleavers to found the SCLC chapter in Kansas City. He later studied theology at the St. Paul School of Theology and then went on to serve as the senior pastor of St. James United Methodist Church for 37 years. He sees the danger of religious extremism through a biblical lens.
2: It is Christians and their interpretation of of the Christian tradition that's causing the problem. It's not unlike what the Pharisees or the Gnostics. I mean, it it just has never reached this kind of a boiling point in the United States. One of the former top FBI official has said that the number one threat to the United States domestically is not any foreign involvement, but it it was the the greatest threat is uh, internal Uh, Americans who become radicalized and or much more likely to do something to physically harm other Americans than any international threat that we previously believed to be the number one thing we should be concerned about.
0: 20 years after 9-11, 20,000 National Guard troops will be stationed in the nation's capital to protect and ensure a peaceful transition of power, underscoring this threat an extraordinary homeland security decision. The entire National Mall will be closed on Inauguration Day. The only people allowed into the security zone on January 20th? Members of the media and security personnel. At the time of this taping, President Trump still refuses to concede the election, and he does not plan to be present to convey his support of the newly elected administration. Now, as fences and barricades were being erected and metal detectors installed around the Capitol complex, the House impeached President Trump for a second time on a single count of inciting the insurrection. I asked Representative Cleavers, can members of Congress achieve the reconciliation they are calling for without accountability?
2: There's absolutely no way. And accountability has to come from two sources, actually three. One, hopefully uh, the, an inner source that's the, the, that they have to sleep in the same bed with themselves each night and knowing that at least six people have died as a result of of their activities. Number two, I think it's the responsibility of the Republican leadership. The problem is, of course, that the head of the conference is one of the leaders of the Trumpican movement. And the third thing is the people back home.
0: While the impeachment passed the House, only 10 members voted to hold President Trump accountable, while four abstained from voting. Representative Cleavers is the chair of the House Civility Caucus. He anticipated some would join Democrats, but suspected the majority would not.
2: I think there are some people who are going to stand up, and they, and in part they stand up because they believe that their belief system requires standing up. And other people are going to continue down the long road because they don't fear any kind of reprimand from their religious tradition. I hate to say this, but I think Trumplican is the official religion of many members of Congress. And if they argue that that's not, I, I would like for them to lay out whether they believe 25th chapter of Matthew speaks to them or Jesus gives us the greatest sermon ever preached in our tradition. Uh, and he talks about what you should and what you should not do. I, I don't think there is any, anything that connects both sides of the aisle or, or the the Trumpican party in particular and the others. We don't have, I, I don't think, enough in common Anymore that we could say, you know, these are the things we believe because for the first time probably in U.S. history, we have competing truths There used to be the truth. And then there was the untruth. I, I think there are people who are trying to establish that there is no truth and that whatever you believe is your truth. And I think when that happens we began to tear down the things that that, uh, brought us together. Look, we are not right now headed in a good direction. You know, there there are those who believe that democracies are always impermanent, that democracies always eventually commit suicide. And I would argue that we are in a suicidal moment right now. And unless things change dramatically, I, I think that things can happen that people in America, because of, of rank arrogance, would say could never happen here. Uh, I think w- we are now retrievable, but if this continues, I just don't know how much further. This keeps me awake at night. I, I have four children. I, I would like for them to grow up in this democracy, albeit imperfect, but I think at least for a long period of time, we were trying to, 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 uh, to make it better.
0: That was Congressman Emanuel Cleavers, representing the 5th District of Missouri. It remains unclear when the Senate will begin the trial. What is clear, however, are the growing voices of faith speaking out. The day of the impeachment, January 13th, the National Council of Churches Leadership and Denominational Leaders, from the Episcopal Church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, The United Methodist Church, the Presbyterian Church USA, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the Alliance of Baptists, and many more signed a public statement calling for the removal of President Trump either by the 25th Amendment or impeachment. In addition to the denominational leaders, nearly 14,000 faith leaders and lay leaders from a cross-section of traditions and belief systems signed a public statement calling for Mr. Trump's removal. The statement ended with this message. While the president desperately attempts to cling to power by overturning the clear will of the majority of American voters, our faith commits us to build a true democracy where the dignity and freedom of every person is respected. Coming up, a group of faith leaders from across traditions are organizing a virtual people's inauguration, inviting people of faith and goodwill from across the political spectrum to take an oath, the day after the presidential inauguration. Here's Sister Simone Campbell, the leader of Network, explaining why.
3: As a nation, we need to recommit ourselves, individually and collectively, to uphold our democracy. Democracies only work when we agree that this is our form of governance. And we have seen that broken down through the president's lies about uh, the election results, his lies about how he was maligned and the fact that we have seen him inside violence and the hostile uh, violent attack on our capital. The only way we can reclaim our agreement to govern together is if we recommit to it as a nation and let these fringe elements know who they are. They're fringe. They're not us. So let's have a strong people's inauguration where we take the oath to be faithful to each other. That can make change in our nation.
0: Coming up, we hear from the lead organizer, Sikh activist and spiritual leader, Valerie Carr, after the break. Stay with us. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. We just heard from Missouri Congressman Emanuel Cleaver, reflecting on the religious extremism that he describes as an existential threat to our democracy. It is clear his concerns are not isolated. This week, we're taking a closer look at one project, the People's Inauguration. It's being organized by Sikh activist and spiritual leader Valerie Carr. She speaks passionately and often about revolutionary love. It's the name of her 2017 TED speech, which has been viewed more than three and a half million times. It is also the subtitle of her memoir, See No Stranger, released last year. This past week, she delivered a prayer for the nation calling for a people's inauguration. Several listeners sent us messages wanting to learn more. I spoke to Carr by Zoom. She was in her home in California But before we discuss the People's Inauguration, I ask, what is revolutionary love?
1: Mm, It's a kind of love without limit. It's the kind of love that all of our faith traditions have called us to. When Abraham says to open your tent to all, when Jesus says to love your neighbor, when Muhammad says to take in the orphan. When Mirabai says to love without limit, when, when Guru Nanak says to see no stranger, nehi bagana, I see no enemy, I see no stranger, that, that is a revolutionary kind of love because it affirms the dignity of every single person. It's a way of being and a way of seeing. And when we act from that place, there's no other way than to create a world of justice around
0: us. And how do you spread that revolutionary love?
1: Each of us has a different role at a different time. Each of us has a sphere of influence. So what does it mean to show up at my child's elementary school and imagine how to transition it into a place where every child is respected and celebrated across race and background? What does it mean to do that in my husband's industry, in the film industry, to to make sure that it's a place that is equitable and where every person's story is valued? What does it mean to do do that for a country? When we are reckoning with the forces of white supremacy, white supremacist terror, it means that all of us have a role where we are to begin to bring the values of justice and truth and dignity into practice
0: here and now. As I hear you describe it, and anyone who's listening to you, I think a, a thought that might roll through their mind is: Where does she preach? Where Where is her congregation? You are so rooted in faith, Valerie. You're so rooted in a faith tradition. Uh, someone might say, "Well, she's she's citing Abraham and Guru Nanak. Like who Who is this?" Um, well, I, you know, in the Sikh faith,
1: there are no clergy. Yeah. And if if there were, then I'd probably have some title before my name, but there aren't. And so I studied law at Yale and I studied divinity at Harvard and I immersed myself and I, and I come from a family of farmers, but I grew up with the stories of my grandfather, of our Sikh ancestors. And I was so drawn to the world of wisdom traditions that I dedicated myself to the study of those traditions. And my life has been... Now, um, reaching back into those traditions and imagining how to interpret them for a new time. What what does the call of love mean in a time such as this? That's that's my role.
0: We are speaking while you are in California. I am less than ten miles from the United States Capitol. Our country is literally between me and you. Is in a moment of tremendous uncertainty as the nation is watching and the world frankly is watching to see what happens next where do we go forward
1: i first want to name the trauma and the rage and the grief and the fear that we are all holding inside of our bodies on wednesday as i watched the armed insurrection at the capitol I was not only afraid for my country, my brother-in-law was trapped inside that building in his office reporting for CNN. He's a reporter who is also brown. So I could only imagine what they would have done if they had found him. I was shaking, I was sobbing with my family all day, and it was only when he was evacuated did I realize that this feeling of terror in my body is familiar. You know, what What happened is unprecedented in modern history to see an assault on the Capitol. It was an assault on on all of us. And yet those of us who occupy black or brown or indigenous bodies, we know what white supremacist terror feels like. It's exactly how I felt as I watched the gunmen walk into the Sikh Gurdwara in Oak Creek, Wisconsin in 2012 and open fire on on my community. So white supremacist terror is as old as this country. And what we are seeing is that... um, the, the rise of it, you know, what were they doing? They were trying to stop a transfer of power to a diverse coalition of leadership that would recognize me and my family as belonging to America. So what I know to be true is that we need sound government. We need strong policies and we will hold our elected leaders accountable. But if uh, we expect only a new administration to do the job of healing and transitioning this country, we won't get far. And so on January 20th, we're going to celebrate the work of democracy and watch a president and a historic vice president take an oath of office. And then the next day, I'm calling, I'm inviting people into a people's inauguration that we, the people, need to be inaugurated into the labor of healing and reimagining and rebuilding America. Every single one of us has a role and we've got to do it with love because we cannot become what we're fighting against. We have to be just as strong, just as convicted in our ideals around love and justice and human worth. And that that labor, that is the labor ahead. That is really the labor of our lifetime within 25 years. As we see these demographic changes unfold in this country, will we continue to teeter on the brink of civil war, no matter who's in office? Or will we start to birth a nation that has never been? Truly, a nation made up of other nations, a nation that is truly multiracial, multi-faith, multicultural, a nation where we see no stranger. We've got 25 years to do this. And so the oath that I'm going to take on January 21st is a commitment to stay in this labor for 25 years, to play my role. And I'm inviting everyone else to imagine what role that they want to play. And if people are, see themselves in this, they can go to thepeoplesinauguration.org to join us.
0: What is it that you are asking people to do when they go to that website?
1: Mm, to take a simple oath. I'm a trained lawyer, so I looked at the Constitution and and saw the words that the president recites, and I thought, okay, what might it mean to take those words and reimagine them into a people's oath? And what might it mean to recommit ourselves to our core values of dignity and justice and truth and liberty and joy? And what might it mean to invite people to do this in community with each other? So we've created templates for educators to do this with students, parents to do this with their children, friends to do this with and for each other, faith leaders to do this with their congregations. And we're imagining if we can shift the energy from resisting to reimagining, from what we are fighting against to what we are fighting for, even from fighting to laboring, laboring for the America that we dream. If we can lift up a vision of that America where we are all safe and free, that is the starting point for how we enter the new era. So when people go, they can, they can take this information and, and create their own events We're going to have a kickoff event with some of the greatest movement leaders, thought leaders, visionaries, faith leaders of our time. We're going to see them making their own oaths and holding up their own visions for America. And then the 10 days that follow, I'll be hosting a teaching journey, a 10-day series called 10 Days to Activate Revolutionary Love. And each day we'll be giving you the tools, the actual tools to show up and fulfill your commitment anchored in love. What does it mean? How do we grieve together? How do we rage together? How do we breathe? How do we push? How do we let joy in? And we'll be carrying people through a journey over the course of the year, those who would like to stay with us and stay in community with us. So the People's Inauguration is just a beginning. It's just a way to walk into this new era together.
0: Who are some of the notable faith leaders that will be participating and supporting this event?
1: Reverend William Barber, Sister Simone Campbell, Angel Kyoto Williams, Otis Moss III, Jackie Lewis, Rabbi Sharon Browse. Um, some of the, the, the faith leaders who have most inspired me, they're going to be in conversation with me, along with leaders from other areas of American public life, from America Ferrera to Van Jones to Ani DeFranco. So it will be a tapestry of reflection and conversation and music and song
0: on Campbell and her voice and her work, one of the things that does come to mind is policy work.
1: Oh, we already, oh, we already have those policy solutions. If you look at organizations who've been in the trenches for so many years from Network to the Black Lives Matter movement to organizations from my community like the Sick Coalition we have already we know what the policy solutions are. We need the Breathe Act. We need the Green New Deal. We need these massive policy overhauls and we need to hold our elected leaders accountable. But what does that mean? We're also tired. <laughs> We're also traumatized. We're also burnt out. How do we find longevity and resilience in the labor? How do we even find the the energy to take not only what we need to do for the country writ large, but to, to look at our own lives, our own schools, our own workplaces, our own neighborhoods, and imagine what are the unspoken policies that govern these places? Because what we need are the broad structural reforms, but policy alone won't transition us. We need a cultural transformation. We need a shift in consciousness. We need a revolution of the heart. And that kind of work is block by block work. It's heart to heart work. So we're inviting people to enter that way of working together, being together. It's the hard and necessary work of learning how to be in just community together, anchored in love.
0: Is this a movement that you envision will create space for people who may have supported Donald Trump and are now taking a second thought about the policies and the people and the movement that drew them and looking for a new home? Are you envisioning this project to be one that is creating space for neighbors who disagree?
1: If you hold fast to the ideals of justice and liberty and truth and wonder and regeneration and joy, if you have been breathless and disturbed and troubled and filled with despair by what you're seeing happen in our country, if you believe that there is a way for us to be a multiracial nation where every single person belongs, where my child is just as safe as yours, then this door is open to you. You'll see all of our imagery is deeply patriotic when we're going back to the founding documents, to the Constitution, to our core values. It is, it is an, an initiative that imagines a we, the people, to include all of us who would join us.
0: You know, as you describe that, Valerie, and I think about um, the things that I've been hearing, not just, you know, in the news media, but in my neighborhood and from my family members who are feeling all those things that you've just described, there is a deep suspicion and concern about the project, the perfect, making this a more perfect union. And I'm curious what you say to the young people who, after watching and witnessing the treatment of the 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 black lives matter protesters over the summer and then watching the ability of um of 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 an incited mob to enter in with no resistance really and watching selfies being taken and high fives and fist bumps as they storm through the Capitol and destroy and destruct and what do you say to the young people who have and do not Um, necessarily embrace those words, believing that they can offer the promise that you clearly um, feel.
1: Mm. Oh, my love, America is not dead. America is a country still waiting to be born. America is not its dream. America is its history. And what you are reckoning with is the hypocrisy and the the terror and the hierarchy of human value that has been part of the founding of this nation from the very beginning. And yet I'm inviting you to look at that dream. Langston Hughes says, oh, America has never been America to me, but yet America still must be. It has taken black people, indigenous people, people of color. They're the ones who made America a democracy in the first place. And to follow our leadership now, means to hold up a vision of a multiracial, multi-faith country where we all belong, the beloved community that Dr. King called us to. So yes, you are right. You are right to feel betrayed. You are right to feel grief over the loss of the story that we've told ourselves about America. And I'm inviting you into the labor of birthing that country that still must be for future generations. Here we are. What will we do together? What could we build together? What could we birth together? What might our country be in 25 years? I invite you to take the long view.
0: Valerie, where do you draw your inspiration?
1: When I was a little girl, my grandfather told me the story of the first woman warrior in the Sikh tradition. Her name was Mai Pago. And the story goes, in the year 1705, there was a great battle, and 40 soldiers abandoned their post. It was too thick. It was too hard. It was too dangerous. They were going to die. They returned to the village to hide, to stay safe. And this village woman turned to them and said, no, 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 our whole world, our whole future depends on you standing up to oppression. You will not abandon your post. You will return to the fire, and and I will lead you. <laughs> she mounted a horse. She donned a turban, and with fire in her eyes, she led them where no one else would. And my grandfather looked at me. and I was a little girl in two long braids. But he said, don't abandon your post. He saw me as a, as a warrior. <laughs> and truly, my entire life since that moment, my entire life has been this effort to keep the promise I made to my grandfather because there are times, I've always wanted to be the warrior in the story, but I am the deserter too. There are times that are so hard, so dark, so bloody that I just want to give up. I want to hide. And my life has been this series of moments of the wise woman in me, the, the woman warrior in me taking my hand and saying, I know, love, I know, I know. But you know what? You're brave. You are brave. Let me, let me take your hand and lead you back, lead you back into the fires of this world. Keep going. Because that is what makes for a meaningful life. I have come to believe that laboring to make this world more just and beautiful for our children, and doing that with a sense of joy, and in and, and my tradition it's called chardikala, ever-rising spirits, even in darkness, ever-rising joy, even in the, the pain of labor, that that joy is possible that joy is possible. The night that my brother-in-law was evacuated, my son and my daughter, they're six and two, pulled on my sleeve and said, dance time, mommy. And I'm like, no, not on a night like this. But my husband's like, you are rules. So we danced. My, my babies were laughing and I, was, and I was, oh, what is this feeling inside of me? It's, it's, it's a rising joy. And I believe that that joy, letting that joy in because the labor is long and the labor is hard and letting that joy in every day returns us to what is good and beautiful and worth fighting for. It gives us energy for that long labor. So
0: that is um, how I stay in it. What is the biggest challenge that you see as you look forward and as you look into next week?
1: I asked a question four years ago. Is, the future is dark. Is this darkness the darkness of the tomb or the darkness of the womb? After all that we have suffered, all the people we have lost in this pandemic, all of the assaults on our democracy, and in the wake of violence and armed insurrection and continued threats of violence, there are moments I can taste ash in my mouth. That darkness of the tomb, that, that is a real possibility for us as a nation. Will we survive as a, will we become a multiracial democracy, or we, will we devolve into some kind of authoritarian state or a state on the brink of civil war? When we think about climate change, the stakes become existential. If we don't start solving the climate crisis, within the next 25 years, there may not be a world at all for our children. Will we perish as a human race? Those are the stakes. Those are the stakes. And and this question about, you know, will we take humanity across the threshold? Those of us who are alive now get to decide whether humanity itself survives or not, as well as where, whether America becomes America or not. That is the work of our lifetime. And it, it it needs every single one of us to show up in the labor, every single one that we we are the midwives to a nation, to a world in transition. And I see glimpses. I see glimpses of the world that is longing to be born. You know, transition and birthing labor, it is the final stage in labor. It is also the most dangerous and breathless stage in labor. It feels like dying. Yet it's precisely in transition that we see glimpses of what could be, what what is wanting to be born. Despite everything that we have survived, I have seen acts of solidarity that I have never seen before in my lifetime. In the wake of George Floyd's murder, to see... White people standing in front of black people kneeling in the street in front of an army of police officers. Those images we did not see in 1968 or 1992. No, the, the, the possibility for there to be a multiracial, multi-faith commitment to each other, to a world where we all belong. There are more people awake to that than ever before. And that's why all of us who have grown up with the word love in our faith traditions it's time for us to go back to those scriptures and get brave about what that word really means. Because this kind of labor, it requires us to go deep, to love each other, to show up with love and orientation of love, even to our opponents, and to love ourselves in the process. That, that's what makes love revolutionary, and that is hard, and it's only done in community, and it's only done if you can find the sources of strength and support and the joyfulness that is possible when we live into that well together. I, I, I invite people to go on the journey with me, to imagine transitioning the country with me. That requires us many of us to transition ourselves. So what, what do we need to do? What is the internal work we need to do with our own pain to say, no, I'm not going to let it destroy me. I, I, I am going to show up with
0: what Dr. King calls the strength to love. We're going to take a short break. When we return, I continue my conversation with Valerie Cower. Stay with us. You're listening to Inspired. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. If you're just joining, we are talking with revolutionary love project leader and sick activist, Valerie Kaur. Let's get back to my conversation. We turn now to the dehumanizing rhetoric in our public discourse and how she sees us moving forward. What do you say to members of the progressive movement and faith community that are using language that is um, it- itself somewhat demonizing? What counsel do you give to the angry or the really um, the really intense rhetoric that we're hearing across the spectrum, not just on the right?
1: Number one, honor your rage your rage is righteous, you have good reason to feel deep horror and profound conviction about standing up to the terror that we have witnessed and the violence that we have survived. Number two, do not become what we are fighting against. We cannot let them make us in their image. We cannot use their own language and hurl it back at them. Booker T. Washington said, I will no, let no man diminish my soul so much as to make me hate him. We cannot let them do that to us. There is a way to hold them accountable and to hold fast to justice without believing that they are monsters. Because here is what I have come to believe. When you make them monsters, you, you give them power over you. There is no such thing as monsters in this world. There are only human beings who are wounded who do what they do out of their own sense of insecurity, fear, anxiety, greed, blindness. How many people standing in front of that Capitol building truly believe, were made to believe by sources that were fanning misinformation, enabled by the president himself, that they, that an election was being taken from them. They believe that they were standing up for democracy. There's there's a part of me that looks at them and and realizes that oh this <laughs> that th- that is a wounded place to be, and they they um they need more of us to see them as full human beings who have the capacity to change over time and I know that's hard for a lot of people to hear, but I know it's true because. Fifteen years after a white supremacist killed a man I called Uncle, Babir Singh Sodhi, we reached out to him and we began a process of reconciliation. And in sitting with him and hearing his story beneath the slogans and the sound bites, I wanted to hate him. But then I began to see his pain and I began to see that so much of white supremacist aggression comes from unresolved grief. They are grieving the notion that this country ever belonged just to them in the first place. It doesn't make them legitimate. It doesn't make them any less dangerous. But once I see them as fully human, once I see no stranger, see no enemy, then then I can begin to see their wound. And I can begin to say, all right, I'm a smarter advocate. What do I need to do to take on the social media companies? What do I need to do to get people who hold truth and speak truth to power in elected office? What do I need to do to hold up a vision of an America?" that includes even them, that leaves no one behind. I'm inviting people to really hard but necessary work in recognizing that that America is a place that must affirm the dignity of every person, even those who would want us dead. It took us 15 years to reach out to Babir Uncle's murderer. 15 years of grieving and raging and letting people love us well. And in all of that time, there had to be someone in that prison who saw Frank Roque as a human being and was able to love him well enough to help him stand the heat of grief, of of guilt and shame to get him to the point where he could even apologize to us. This process of redemption and transformation, it takes time. We need justice now. We need accountability now. And even just holding out the possibility that the man who swung the Confederate flag inside the US Capitol might one day be able to sit with someone like me and see me as a sister, I have to hold on to that vision because it makes me braver, and it, may, it, it, it at least opens up previously unimaginable possibility that we might all live in a nation where every person is safe and, and free. I want to be very clear about, you know, I describe revolutionary love as love for others, opponents, and ourselves. We all have different roles in the labor at any given time. If you are someone who has a knee on your neck... It is not necessarily your role to look up at your opponent and try to wonder about them or love them. Your job is to stay alive. It's to take the next breath. It is to love yourself well enough to last. And but if you are someone who is safe enough or brave enough to tend to those kinds of opponents, we need you to talk them down now. When Manu, my my brother-in-law, was finally safe at the end of Wednesday, he made it he was evacuated from the Capitol. I talked to my teammate a dear friend who told me that her parents were standing on the outside of the building. They were part of the protest. So here, here my brother-in-law was trapped inside and her parents were on the outside. And I know, I know because I love her that her parents aren't monsters. They have been misled and they are wounded and they have deep, deep bias. Somebody has to tend to those wounds. It's not going to be me. This is not my, my role is to tend to my own family's trauma and my own family's rage and to process that with each other. But it might be her role to sit with her parents, to make sure they're not part of the next thing that happens, to talk them down and to eventually help them see what they could not see before, which is that there is a place for my family in this country too. Everyone has a different role and your job, each of us is to ask, what is my role right now? To love another who is in who's, who needs solidarity, to love myself because and my people because we need to last or to, 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 to reach out to family relatives, neighbors who are our opponents right now to begin that hard and necessary work of being in relationship. we need you there because I can 't be there, we need you there. I believe white people in this country right now have an opportunity like never before to change the meaning of whiteness? For too long has whiteness been synonymous with domination, with blindness, and even with the kind of aggression that we saw in the Capitol. So what might it mean for white people who stand with us To say, no, we're going to change what it means to be white. To be white is to be an ally. To be white is to be an accomplice. To be white is to stand up for Black and Indigenous and people of color in this country and say, we are with you. We are with you. We will protect you. We will defend you. We will follow your leadership because your leadership is what is going to transition this country. I think there's a role for each And every one of us, we can't do it with any one of us sitting out.
0: How will you be celebrating Martin Luther King Day next week?
1: With my babies. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to be telling my son. He's six years old now, and he's now ready to hear Dr. King's full story. And, you know, last year I gave an MLK address to a large audience and before I went to give that address, I said, oh, oh, Covey, you know, I'm a little nervous. It's a thousand people. I'm going to talk about Dr. King. And Gavi says, you know, is, is Dr. King still alive? I was like, oh, no, my love. And I didn't tell him how or why he wasn't. But I'm like, no, he's in the stars. That's what we say. He's in the stars. And he says, no, mommy. I talked to him on the phone. And I realized that I had taken my son to a civil rights museum and he had picked up one of those phones where oh, you yeah. he can hear audio recordings of speeches. And so his memory is that he heard Dr. King speak to him. And I thought, that is the power of our ancestors. Like they are, you're right, Gavi, he is still alive. He's alive in us. He's alive in us. And so when I talk about love, I talk about, you know, his hand on my shoulder. Like all of us can do that. All of us can do that. So I'll be sharing the full story with Gavi now and answering his questions and inviting him to imagine what it might mean for him to be part of the work of building a beloved community.
0: Valerie Kaur is an activist and multi-faith organizer based in California. She is also the author of See No Stranger, a memoir and manifesto of revolutionary love. Both she and Congressman Cleaver spoke and referenced Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy and work. This year, the national holiday honoring Dr. King is two days before the inauguration, in which Vice President-elect Kamala Harris is set to make history. We would like to close this week's show with her reading, Dr. King's Letter from a Birmingham Jail, on the floor of the United States Senate from April 2019.
4: You may well ask, why direct action? Why sit-ins, marches, and so forth? Is it negotiation? a better path. You are quite right in calling for negotiation. Indeed, this is the very purpose of direct action. Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community, which has constantly refused to negotiate, is forced to confront the issue. It seeks so to dramatize the issue that it can no longer be ignored. My citing the creation of tension as part of the work of the nonviolent resistor may sound rather shocking, but I must confess that I am not afraid of the word tension. I have earnestly opposed violent tension, but there is a type of constructive, nonviolent tension which is necessary for growth. Just as Socrates felt that it was necessary to create a tension in the mind so that individuals could rise from the bondage of myths and half-truths to the unfettered realm of creative analysis and objective appraisal. So must we see the need for nonviolent gadflies to create the kind of tension in society that will help men rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood. The purpose of our direct action program is to create a situation so crisis-packed that it will inevitably open the door to negotiation. I therefore concur with you in your call for negotiation. Too long has our beloved Southland been bogged down in a tragic effort to live in monologue rather than dialogue. My friends, I must say to you, that we have not made a single gain in civil rights without determined legal and nonviolent pressure. Lamentably, it is a historical fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Individuals may see the moral light and voluntarily give up their unjust posture. But, as Reinhold Nebauer has reminded us, Groups tend to be more immoral than individuals. We know, through painful experience, that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have yet to engage in a direct action campaign that was quote-unquote well-timed in the view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I've heard the word wait. It rings in the air of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see with one of our distinguished jurists that justice too long delayed is justice denied. We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights.
0: That's all for this week's episode. A special thanks to Kevin McCarthy, our producer, Maureen Fiedler, our founder, and MC Yogi for our theme music. Inspired is produced by Interfaith Voices. To learn more about us, please visit our website at interfaithradio.org. There, you can subscribe to our podcast, support our work, and join us. We are launching a virtual live book club, and we'd love to have you be a part of it. To learn more, visit interfaithradio.org and sign up for the newsletter. Thanks for listening, and wherever you are, I hope that you are safe and stay connected. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan, and I'll see you next week.